Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hey listeners, did you know that the team behind Real Outlaws has other podcasts too? Discover them all at Noiser.com, home of the Noiser Network. You'll find hundreds of immersive true stories. There's a world of podcasts waiting for you. So don't miss it. Listen on the website or wherever you get your podcasts. Ned Kelly is popularly known as the Australian Robin Hood, a semi-mythical figure drawn from the traditions of the highwayman. Depending on who you speak to, he's a cultural icon, a social revolutionary, or just another stone-cold killer. The harsh realities of life on the fringes in the bushland territories of colonial Australia shaped the man he would become and the legend that would emerge. This is Ned Kelly, Part 2. Outbreak. It's dusk on October the 25th, 1878, in the highlands of South Australia. Spring is hot and humid in the bush. Steam rises from puddles left by a recent thunderstorm, creating hazy streaks of light in the low evening sun. Four disheveled figures creep between the gray trees, pushing through drooping branches and deep ferns. It's six months since Ned Kelly's mother was arrested for the attempted murder of Constable Fitzpatrick. For half a year, the Kelly gang have hidden out in the wombat ranges of Victoria. They've survived on provisions from supportive farmers in return for gold, sluiced from the river, and moonshine brewed in their bush stills. But not everyone in the area is sympathetic to the Kellys. Ned holds up a hand and gestures beyond a fallen tree. There, in a clearing several meters away, are the horses he's been tracking. He'd come across the tracks yesterday and followed them to this camp at Stringy Bark Creek. Now he's returned with the other members of his gang. He counts three horses, and based on the tracks, he was expecting four or five. Looking more closely, he notices rifles propped up against a tree stump. This is no friendly gathering. This is a police hunting party, and they don't mean to take prisoners. Ned notices that one of the pack horses is fitted with special leather straps this horse has been brought along for the sole purpose of carrying the corpses of Ned Kelly and his brother Dan back into town. Tending to the horses is a policeman he doesn't recognize. But further off, sitting by a fire, is a man Ned knows only too well. It's Constable Lonigan. Ned's filthy bearded face flushes red with rising fury. It was Lonigan who crushed his testicles during a trumped-up arrest last year. 
the injury still gives him jip. The last time they met, Ned swore to kill him. Ned slinks up behind a tree, scanning the clearing. The first lawman leaves the horses and sits next to Lonigan, talking quietly. When Ned tracked the squad here yesterday, he was sure there were four, but now there are only two men. He hesitates in case he's missed the others, but decides he can't wait any longer. Ned steps out from behind the tree, cocking his rifle and striding from the bush in one fluid motion. Bail up, he yells, leveling his rifle at the two startled policemen. The first lawman quickly drops his shotgun and throws his hands in the air. The second, Constable Lonigan, freezes, eyeing Ned carefully. At the other side of the camp, Dan, Steve, and Joe emerge from the trees, rifles trained on the two officers. For a moment, nothing stirs, just the crackle of the fire. Ned and Lonigan stare at one another, as if daring each other to speak. Suddenly, Lonigan pulls his pistol and dives behind a pile of logs for cover. The gang hold fire. But as Lonigan peeks out to take a shot, Ned's rifle cracks once. Lonigan stumbles out, dropping his gun as he tries to raise his hands in surrender. But it's too late. He slumps to the ground. Everyone watches as his chest heaves several times, spluttering his last breaths before falling silent. Ned has just shot and killed a Victoria police officer. He knows there's no going back now. Ned swings the rifle back onto the remaining officer, a man named McIntyre, and demands to know who else is in the camp. McIntyre confirms they're alone. The tents are empty, but their colleagues could return at any moment. Ned searches McIntyre as Joe and Steve ransack the camp. All the time, Ned's brother Dan Kelly laughs nervously, jumping up and down like a kangaroo. Before long, they hear the sound of the two riders returning. The gang dive into a tent, leaving McIntyre outside by the fire. Ned has him covered with a rifle and threatens to put a bullet through him if he gives a warning. Moments later, the two remaining lawmen ride back into the camp. Before they can make sense of the terrified look in McIntyre's eyes, the Kelly gang burst from the tent, Ned yelling, Bail up! The first officer immediately begins firing. He dives off his horse, running for the nearby bushes. It's chaos. Bullets fly in all directions as the Kelly gang return fire. A bullet from Ned's rifle slams into the stunned second officer, dropping him where he stands. Ned has just killed his second lawman. Bullets are still buzzing in the air like bush flies. In the confusion, Constable McIntyre grabs a horse and mounts it, galloping away before anyone can stop him. Meanwhile, the remaining officer dashes off into the bush. Ned grabs a shotgun and takes off in hot pursuit. The two men race through the trees, branches clawing at their faces. Without breaking stride, the lawman fires his revolver back over his shoulder at his pursuer. 
Ned ducks and dodges, looking for a clear shot. A bullet nearly parts his beard. Another rips through his shirt. Finally, he gets his chance. Ned blasts his shotgun, catching the officer in the arm. Wounded, the lawman stops running and drops his gun in the dirt. Clutching his arm, he turns just as Ned reaches him. The outlaw pulls the trigger again, blowing apart the doomed man's chest. He only realizes the officer was surrendering when he spots the revolver on the ground. He feels a pang of regret. Ned kneels on the ground with the dying man, holding him gently, straining to hear his final words, something about family. Ned picks up the fallen revolver and presses it to the officer's heart. He squeezes the trigger and puts him out of his misery. Three dead lawmen. History is full of men and women who live outside the law. Some are heroes, others are villains. Many are both. Each week, we'll take you on a journey into the life and times of notorious outlaws, from Billy the Kid and Ned Kelly to Anne Bonny and Al Capone. We'll delve deep into their stories to find out how legends were born and continue to grow, often long after they're gone. I'm Nathan Wiley. And this is Real Outlaws. This week on Real Outlaws, the Kelly brothers, Ned and Dan, along with their two friends, Joe Byrne and Steve Hart, are on the run in the bush. Now confronted with hostile force, Ned must choose a path or does the path choose him? The simmering of social unrest in rural Victoria rises to the point of revolution, and one man can set it all off. We witness what some will call the Kelly outbreak. Social bandit or cynical outlaw? You decide. Only young Constable McIntyre escapes the bloodbath at Stringy Bark Creek. After leaving his injured horse, he hides in a wombat hole, waiting for dark. He then walks for hours without his boots on to deaden the sound of his steps. Navigating by stars and a small compass, McIntyre finally reaches a farm late afternoon the following day. When he's taken to the police station at nearby Mansfield Township, Constable McIntyre gives his account of the terrible events and realizes just how lucky he is to be alive. Graham Seal is a professor of folklore at Curtin University in Perth and author of Tell Him I Died Game, The Legend of Ned Kelly. Four policemen were sent out to chase him and in the long stringy bark creek, they caught up with each other and out of that experience, Ned Kelly shot three of them dead one escaped to bring the bad news. A week or so after that, I think it was, Nick Kelly and the other three members of the gang were outlawed. A search party, including McIntyre, is immediately sent into the bush. Early the next morning, they find the still smoldering remains of the burnt-out camp with two corpses. The third will not be found for a couple of weeks. The bodies have all been looted of anything of value, 
watches, jewelry, and personal items. The killing spree will go down as the worst police killing in the colony's history, and news of it spreads like wildfire. In Ned's own eyes, he's a champion of the common man, whose actions are justified. But in the eyes of many, Ned Kelly has transformed into a cold-blooded killer overnight. A reward is posted, 200 pounds per head for each of the four bushrangers. But they still remain hidden in the bush. The reward is soon increased to 2,000 pounds. That's 1,000 pounds for the capture of Ned Kelly and another 1,000 pounds for his three accomplices. It is a staggering sum for the day. In early November, notices are posted throughout Victoria Colony that the gang have until the 12th of November to give themselves up. But the date comes and goes, and there's still no sign of the Kelly gang. Taking desperate measures, the government of the Victoria Colony decide to bring in a new law called the Felons Apprehensions Act, just so they can specifically target Ned Kelly and his gang. On the 15th of November, Ned Kelly, Dan Kelly, Joe Byrne, and Steve Hart are officially declared outlaws. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Outlaw is a pretty ancient form of legal procedure by which an individual is effectively cast out of a community. And back in the medieval era and before, they would say that a person bore the wolf's head. They were no longer considered to be a human. All their property was forfeit to the authorities and they could be killed on sight by anybody with impunity. That's a very ancient way of doing business uh, in these situations. In Australia, they had um, legislation called the Feelings Apprehension Act, which was in New South Wales. That's another colony in Victoria, but the Victorians, where Ned Kelly was operating, quickly adapted that earlier legislation, which had been brought in to control those earlier bushrangers, and turned it into a piece of legislation that was specifically targeted at the Kellys. So they were outlawed under that legislation and pretty well anyone could have a go at them. And of course, the police set out and the police were pretty unhappy, of course, because three of their number were dead. The law makes it an offence to give aid, shelter or sustenance to an outlaw, withhold information or give false information to the authorities. A citizen can be punished with up to 15 years hard labour on the other hand, aid in their capture and there's a 2,000-pound reward. The authorities are determined to split loyalties and turn the public against the Kellys. 
but their network of supporters haven't given up on them. And it's this network of supporters who will help them now, as they enter the next phase of their plan. Ned Kelly is well aware of his growing reputation. His outlaw status only adds to the romantic mythology of the Bushranger, a dying breed of bandit that has all but been eradicated. Bushranging is the Australian version, if you like, of the Robin Hood tradition, which is all around the world, of course, this idea that there are some kind of people who are noble robbers. Dick Turpin, of course, is the English example. Jesse James, Billy the Kid, and so forth in America. And you get equivalent figures pretty well everywhere. They were pretty well finished by the middle of the 1860s. And it's not until the 1870s, late 1870s, that the Kelly outbreak occurs. That's why you find Ned Kelly's often called the last bushranger. Bushrangers are often seen as local heroes, bucking the system and fighting for the common folk. Perhaps some were noble libertarians, an embodiment of anti-establishment feeling in a nation growing out of the shadow of a harsh colonial penal system. But many were just violent men who raped and murdered their way across the rural wilderness. In any case, Kelly has his own agenda, and to ensure popular support, he intends to live up to that mythical ideal. It's December 10th, 1878, in a small rural township of Euroa, six weeks after the police killings at Stringybark Creek. Euroa is said to mean joyful in the language of the local indigenous people. Today will prove to be anything but joyful for some townsfolk. It's the start of a long, hot summer. The rutted main street of the town is parched. Cart tracks have worn grooves into mud, now turned to hard, cracked ground. A hawker's wagon and a small open-topped cart rumble over the bumps their wheels kicking up dust in the late afternoon sun. A couple of woodcutters look up at the three smart men sitting on the passing carts and scurry out of their way. Kelly sympathizers have been in the town for a couple of days, passing information to Ned and his friends. Despite the secrecy around what's about to happen, a few townspeople have heard whispers and put two and two together. Although the strangers are wearing fine new clothes, the woodcutters have little trouble recognizing the new arrivals from the wanted posters that have been stuck up over the last month. Ned Kelly, Dan Kelly, and Steve Hart. The three outlaws head straight for a squat square brick building on the edge of town. The wooden sign above the door says Euroa National Bank. Dan and Steve jump down from the wagon and scurry alongside the building, while Ned ties up the cart. He looks at the door and narrows his eyes. It's just after 4 p.m., and the bank is locked. Ned thumps a fist on the sun-bleached wood. The door opens a crack, filled with the small, stern-looking face of a bank clerk. You're too late! The clerk shouts, but Ned pulls out a check, waving it around and demanding that it's cashed today. He asks to see the manager. Losing patience, Ned barges the door with his shoulder, pushing the smaller man inside. 
Dan and Steve quickly follow, slamming the door behind them. Another clerk rushes forward, but Ned pulls his revolver and tells the two men to bail up. As soon as he gives his name, they throw their hands in the air. Ned leads the shaking men behind the counter and into the manager's office. The gang rounds up the manager's family from his adjoining house while Ned asks where the money is. Ned's reputation precedes him, and the keys are quickly handed over. The 320 goods train hasn't long since departed, and the safes are full to the brim. Gold and silver coins and piles of notes are dropped into a sack, later estimated at around 2,000 pounds. Ned grabs handfuls of mortgage deeds and securities, bagging them up too. Steve brings the carts to the yard out back and readies the manager's own buggy, loading up sacks of loot. Ten minutes later, the safes are empty. The gang gesture with their guns, forcing the bank staff and manager's family onto the waiting carts. The three heavily armed outlaws transport the 14 hostages a short distance to a nearby hamlet, so they can't raise the alarm. A few minutes later, they pull up outside a long, wooden farm building. The hostages marvel at the audacity of the gang's raid as they see downed telegraph lines alongside the railway line, felled by the outlaws to ensure no alarm or warning could be sent to the police at the nearby town of Benalla. They are hustled inside, where they are shocked to find another 30 or so people being watched over by the 4th heavily armed Kelly gang member, Joe Byrne. He stands at the front of the room, one foot up on a chair and a rifle in each hand. Among the hostages are the farm owner and his family, servants, and the traveling hawker the gang stole their disguises and wagon from. When it becomes clear the robbery has been a success and the police are not on their tail, the mood in the room lightens. Ned orders food to be cooked for everyone, and the outlaws treat the hostages to a show of trick horsemanship on the road outside. Before leaving, Ned makes a show of setting fire to the bank's mortgage deeds, sticking up a middle finger at authority and proving to the hostages he's one of them. He gives silver coins to all the women and servants, then straps the loot to his saddle and as the sun dips below the trees, the four outlaws ride off into the bush. Bushrangers were treated in folklore, at least, as heroes, in the same way that Dick Turpin and you know, Robin Hood is a myth, of course, but Jesse James, the common people, if you want to put it that way, generally speaking, celebrated these kind of individuals. They were smart people, they weren't stupid and they knew that that was the way they needed to be perceived by the public and by their own supporters, of course, because it was vital that their supporters continued to sympathise with them and to provide them with the information they needed to stay free in the bush, tell them when the police were coming, give false information to the police about where they were, which is what they did. And uh, they had a very effective network that did all that for them. And so they operated in that way. So that's why Ned went to such trouble, not only to spruik himself, his cause as it was, uh, but also to be seen to be doing stuff like burning mortgages. 
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. When the police do finally arrive at the farm the gang used, they find the ground scuffed. Any tracks have been purposely obliterated under the hooves of the surrounding farmers' horses, who've converged on the area. Several of the hostages go out of their way to describe the gang as courteous and entertaining, though others claim Ned and the other gang members had cocked their revolvers, waving them around in a rage, threatening them. Others still claim the gang told them they'd burn down the buildings with the hostages inside if they resisted. There are clearly differences of opinion over the conduct of the Kelly gang, most likely depending on politics and social class. What is not in doubt is the success of the audacious Kelly gang's first bank robbery. The hostile press of the day are forced to praise the bank raid, conceding the Kelly gang have carried out a daring and skillfully planned heist, while writing scathingly of the Victoria police, who have so far turned up no leads. In the following days, Proceeds from the robbery are distributed to poor farming families of the region, or some goes to the poor. Mostly, it finds its way to the gang's extended network of family, friends, and other criminal associates. Just like Robin Hood, Ned Kelly is now seemingly robbing from the rich to give to the poor. He was a very good PR man. I mean, they understood that they were working in this tradition, the noble robber, the idea that you shouldn't offer unjustified violence to people. If it did kill somebody, it should be seen to be justified, which was the argument that he made about killing the policemen. Of course, they were out to get me. I knew they were going to kill me. It was me or them, rightly or wrongly. That was the argument. There's always been a, an element of sort of romantisation of bushrangers. There were many, many other bushrangers who were just common thugs, of course. So it was only very few who end up becoming heroes. So that's the kind of, if you like, the on the ground view of things. The press, of course, and the authorities moralising about this, they're not happy at all, as you, people with property and money, of course, are being robbed by these characters, so you know, they're not pleased. So, yeah, that's pretty much the situation. It's a little bit sort of yeah, dichotomous, I suppose you'd call it, um, and that's that contradictory aspect of the noble robber or the heroic outlaw who is both good and bad at the same time. Again, it all depends on your perspective. But that, of course, is that tradition, if you like. More than most, Ned Kelly seems to have had an eye on his public perception. On the 14th of December, the police superintendent at Benalla and a Victorian MP each received a copy of a letter supposedly authored by Kelly. The MP has recently been critical of the police, 
and the Prime Minister of the Victoria Colony has promised a thorough inquiry if evidence of corruption and incompetence can be produced. Ned has read about this in the newspaper and taken it as an invitation to tell his side of the story. In the letter, he makes claims of police harassment and corruption, giving his version of events a few months earlier, when Constable Fitzpatrick had come to arrest his brother, the incident which had sparked their flight into the bush. He tells of the persecution and harassment he has faced. He also puts across his side of the events at the Stringybark Creek the previous month, when he shot and killed three policemen. He signs the letter Edward Kelly, Enforced Outlaw. Ned expects the letter to be published in newspapers and read in Parliament, by who he assumes is a supportive MP. He couldn't be more wrong. The police, mindful of sparking further hostility among the poor farming communities, do not release the letter to the press. Censored extracts are published where it suits the police. The rest of the contents are suppressed, only coming to light many years later. By early January, the police still have no leads on the Kellys. The silence is deafening. Using their new powers under the Felons Apprehensions Act, 30 suspected sympathizers are rounded up from towns and villages local to Ned's hometown. Dozens are arrested and held without charge. This drags on for months. Fields go unworked. First crops fail. Then the farms themselves. The police do not win themselves any new fans. The clear police harassment either strengthens sympathies towards the Kellys or increases the antipathy towards the authorities. Eventually, the judge releases all the men. But the damage is done. Trust in the police, the government, even the law itself is at an all-time low. And to top it off, farmers are in more desperate need of cash than ever. In fact, by early 1879, across the territory, civil unrest is brewing. It's a powder keg, and many think one man could provide the spark. The government of Victoria transfer additional police to the region and station soldiers in any towns with banks. Ned may be tough and resilient, but even he won't risk a direct confrontation with armed troops. But he isn't going to stop now, either. On the 8th of February, 1879, he looks to the town of Gerildery. Yes, Gerildery, it's over the border from Victoria in New South Wales, and the Kellys turned up there one day and visited the police station, and they manacled the police, held them up, manacled them, threw them in their own cell, and then took their clothes and dressed themselves up in policemen's clothes. And the next day they marched down the street with one of the policemen in broad daylight and told the policeman to tell everybody that they came across that the bush rangers were actually an anti-Kelly squad, not to worry too much. And they did various other things like that. And they also then took over the Royal Mail Hotel, which there was people inside drinking. And they stayed inside drinking, the bush rangers, and so did the police. They put them in there as well. And anyone else who came in was popped inside the hotel. Drinks were on the Kellys. And the interesting thing about the hotel, of course, was that it was next to the bank. Some in the hotel are Kelly sympathizers who've been in town several days providing information. 
They are planted among the hostages to ensure compliance, shouting down any attempts to resist the gang. Fortunately, none do, and the raid progresses smoothly. While Dan Kelly and Steve Hart guard the hotel, Ned and Joe Byrne use a back door to enter the bank from inside the hotel. The bank staff and customers are moved next door, adding to the ever-growing throng of hostages who are now enjoying the free booze in the hotel bar. The outlaws lighten the bank's safes of over 2,000 pounds in cash. And once again, he grabs the mortgage deeds, his signature symbol of defiance. They were all held for a bit longer. Uh, Ned also, as well as taking the money from the safe, he also burned the mortgages publicly, uh, which of course went down very well with people who had mortgages, which is most people. Not that it would make any difference because they just get a copy from the head office in Sydney in a week or two. Byrne makes his way across the street to the post office, where he destroys the town's telegraph, cutting off communication. Next, the hostages are brought out into the street and given axes. They are supervised felling telegraph poles to keep the authorities at bay for even longer. Satisfied that everything is going according to plan, Ned walks across the street towards the newspaper office. This time he'll go straight to the source. He has a new letter in his pocket and he'll demand it to be published in full. Unfortunately, when he steps inside the office, he finds that the editor skipped town as soon as the raid started. Thwarted, Ned assembles the hostages. He'll dictate his message himself. He makes one of his habitual speeches about how much he's been wronged and how um, bad the police are, etc., etc. And the whole, his situation is very bad and he's been forced into this kind of outlawry situation because of that. And he says he doesn't mean to hurt anybody and, and actually pretty much keeps to that until, uh, until the end, really. And uh, that's it. So then uh, there's a bit of mucking around in the hotel and uh, then they take off. One of the bush rangers then does a display of horsemanship. They're all superb horsemen, of course, and bushmen. Come down the main street, much to the delight of the locals. And then they take off telling the people where they're going, which is not where they're going. And they go back across the Murray River into Victoria. Ned Kelly and his gang of outlaws disappear into the bush where they'll stay hidden for a year and a half. The only evidence he leaves behind, aside from the missing loot from the bank and a town full of people with stories to tell, is the 56-page letter he planned to have published. He leaves it with a bank clerk, with instructions that it be printed in full. It's an explosive piece of writing and leaves the reader in no doubt as to his opinion of the police. At one point, he even calls them a parcel of big, ugly, fat-necked, wombat-headed, big-bellied, magpie-legged, narrow-hipped, splaw-footed sons of Irish bailiffs or English landlords. He confesses to various crimes, but goes on to say he was forced into this life due to police corruption and unjust persecution. His version of the terrible events at Stringybark Creek play out very differently to the government's. In Ned's eyes, the police killings were justified, as they were entirely in self-defense. If you read his derogatory letter, it's basically a kind of self-justificatory rant in many ways, or partly anyway, and he pretty well refutes most of the things that are said about him, or the bad things, and insists that he was either wronged or he was trying to do the right thing. He rails against the tyranny of the English yoke, 
invoking Irish mythology and a spirit of rebellion, and bemoans the abysmal treatment of the poor selector farming families. Part apology, part excuse, it also reads as a political manifesto for a republican state, a call to arms. It also includes poetry and humor. It ends, Neglect this and abide by the consequences which shall be worse than the rust and the wheat of Victoria, or the drought of a dry season to the grasshoppers in New South Wales. I do not wish to give the order full force without giving timely warning, but I am a widow's son outlawed and my orders must be obeyed. The Gerald Derry letter will become the cornerstone of the Kelly as social revolutionary myth. So eloquent is it that some have even cast doubt on its real author. It's thought that Kelly, with little or no education, likely dictated the letter to someone else. But many still believe the ideological content is all Ned. In any case, it will never reach its intended audience. Yet again, the contents are deemed too dangerous to be published, and so it is suppressed by the government. A synopsis is published in newspapers within weeks of the raid, with most newspapers downplaying or mocking Ned Kelly's proclamations. One ends, There is boastful, intemperate tone throughout the letter. There is much in Kelly's letter unsuitable for publication, and it will consequently be withheld. Similar to Ned's earlier letter in the wake of Euroa, the full text will not be made public until 1930. Banks and the government of New South Wales clubbed together to raise a reward of £4,000 for the capture of the gang, dead or alive. This is soon matched by the government of Victoria, bringing the total to £8,000, a staggering sum and the highest ever reward offered for bushrangers, equal to roughly 1.5 million Australian dollars today. Search parties are hastily organized, and all family and associates of the Kellys are placed under close surveillance. Ned isn't too worried about the local authorities. He's always one step ahead. That is, until March 1889, when a special squad consisting of Aboriginal trackers from Queensland is brought in. The trackers' skills are legendary. It's commonly said that they can find a butterfly if it had flown past somewhere a week earlier. Since the early period of the colonies, the skills of these indigenous Australians have been exploited by Europeans to navigate a vast, hostile landscape. Now, their fabled skills are also turned to hunting down bushrangers. The teams, known as the Native Police, are uniformed, mounted, and heavily armed troopers working under white officers. The squad from Queensland have been specifically chosen by the increasingly desperate police. With a terrible reputation for ferocity, they often shoot first and take no prisoners. Just weeks before being brought in to join the hunt for the Kellys, they brutally massacred at least 28 people. 
Ned has heard the horror stories, and now reads in the newspapers that the trackers are cannibals who plan to eat them. It's not true, of course, but it does add to the terrifying image of these fantastic trackers. In a manhunt that at its peak involved over 200 police on his tail, the six young aborigines are the only young men on earth he truly fears. Ned knows if they catch his trail, he's a dead man. The Kelly gang retreat deep into the bush, barely seen in public. They will never rob another bank again. It seems that the bushrangers eventually determined they, they were in the bush for about 18 months or so, and it's a very hard life living in the bush, obviously, in their situation. So they came to a point where there was going to have to be a showdown. They were going to have to end it one way or another. They can't hide out forever. So end it they will in epic style. Next time on Real Outlaws, the air is thick with bullets as the Kelly outbreak reaches its terrible conclusion. Ned, already thought by many to be superhuman in strength, will be tested to the limit. More hostages will be dragged into the fray before a final standoff that turns into the mightiest shootout in Australian history, cementing a legend that will be remembered for centuries to come. That's next time on Real Outlaws. If you're enjoying Noiser podcasts and would like to hear them without adverts, join Noiser Plus today. As well as ad-free listening to Noiser originals, including Real Outlaws, Real Dictators, Short History Of, and History Daily, You'll get bonus content and early access to new episodes. Start your free trial today with Noiser Plus.